Please open your Bibles with me today. Keep them open. We'll be looking at several passages today. Please turn with me to Luke chapter number 23. The last few weeks we have been studying the subject of the conversations of the Lord Jesus Christ around the cross. There are many articles that have been written about the seven sayings of Jesus while he was on the cross. But our goal has been to look at some of the conversations that Jesus had with different people the day before the cross and the day of the cross and then eventually after the cross. And so I want you to look with me in Luke 23. And when you read through your Bible or if you study through the Bible, and especially if you do it chapter by chapter and verse by verse, then it's going to force you to look at some things that you normally would just pass over and things that maybe you would not study or consider the significance of some of those statements. When you get to Luke 23... We saw last week where that the Bible told us that the Gentile powers and the Jewish powers had come together to betray and crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Politically and religiously, the best that the earth had to offer at that time, rejected the Son of God. And we saw some of the conversations that Jesus had uh, with these men. And now Jesus has been scourged. And when when you hear that word scourged, do not take that word lightly. For those Roman soldiers would take uh, their cat of nine tails and they would uh, beat a man literally almost within an inch of his life. And they had beaten him and spat upon him and mocked him, placed upon him some beautiful robes and then took them off of him. And now he is on his way uh, to the cross. And we know that he's been beaten Profusely, we know that he, to the point of where that they even had to ask a, a, another man to, to take the cross and help him carry it by the name of Simon of Cyrene. Now, so when you get to this passage here, uh, you will see, look with me in Luke 23, and we'll pick up right there in verse number uh, 27. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem or to Israel and to see some of the things that are there, they will take you on this path. And it uh, it is uh, approximately about two miles that Jesus had to walk after they had treated him like this. But there is a conversation here that we need to study today, and I need your undivided attention. It's a very sobering. And why wouldn't it be? This is around the crucifixion of Jesus. But the conversation he's about to have is like it just comes out of nowhere to a group of people that you wonder why he would even take the time to even address them. But notice with me in chapter number 23 and in verse number 27. The Bible says, And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. I don't know how many of these women might have been professional mourners because there is, a, there is a group you'll read throughout the scriptures whenever someone would die, there would be people there mourning who were not even kin to the family. 
and they were professional mourners. It's not that they didn't care. It's just it seemed like their gift was of sympathy for people who were suffering. I don't know, but I do know this. The Bible says in verse number 28, it says, but Jesus, now you've got to think about his condition at this point of how badly he has been beaten, how he has been humiliated, how he has been mocked, and how he has been rejected. We cannot really understand it. But here in verse number 28, he takes the time and he turns and he speaks to these women. He speaks to them prophetically. He says in verse 28, But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. He says, But weep for yourselves, for your children, and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. And for a Jewish woman, to be barren of a child was something that was reproachful. And so now Jesus says the day's coming of when you're going to say that woman's blessed in that she does not have a child during this time. Now notice it says in verse 30, he says, Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Now that's considered to be what is referred to as a Jewish idiom. And what that simply means is Jesus is saying to them, hey, if the Roman authorities and the Gentiles are going to do this to someone such as myself, full of life and harmless and only producing and doing good, what are they going to do to you down the road when you revolt and you rebel and you're good for nothing, basically, to them? And so... Let's end that verse right there and let's pray and let's do a Bible study. I'm going to tell you now, by the time we get to the end of this, it's very sobering. And I pray that the Lord, though, but there's some things in here that will that's practical to us about what's going on right now in the United States of America. And so I pray that God would bless us today as we study. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you might help your servant. And Lord, use me, I pray, to speak the truth and to be a blessing to my church family. Lord, I know that they need a word from you. And God, I pray that you'd meet every need today. In Jesus' name, amen. I need you to turn with me to Matthew chapter number 11. How did we get here? Now, Jesus is basically saying to these women, He said, listen, I don't need you to weep for me. He said, because I'm not a victim here. I am not helpless here. Basically, I am finishing, accomplishing my task. And the things that have befallen me, I have allowed them to do to me. And so Jesus is not taking the victim role here. And can I also say to you that he's not looking for your sympathy in this situation. He's looking for your faith in him in this situation, that he was accomplishing something 
in, in this scenario. But I need you to, now I'm going to have to carry you through a few passages of Scripture, so be patient with me and bear with me here. Do you understand the significance here when he uses the term the daughters of Jerusalem? Do you understand the significance of that city in the eyes of God? You know, the, the psalmist tells us, you know, about uh, that we should pray for uh, the peace of Jerusalem. You know, the first time that Jerusalem is mentioned in the Scriptures is way back over in the book of Genesis. And at that point, it was when uh, Abraham had come back from a battle of saving his nephew Lot. And there was a man that came out to meet him by the name of Melchizedek. And he was referred to as the king of Salem. And that meant, or eventually, that city would become Jerusalem. But that was the first mention of Jerusalem, king of Salem. And I'll tell, tell you what, Melchizedek's a weird character in the Bible. You ought to do a little bit of study on him. And if you can figure him out, we'll let you teach that class, all right? We believe it to be, most men do who believe the Bible and who study it, believe him to be a pre-Bethlehemic appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But eventually, David captures this city from the Jebusites. The Jebusites made fun of David and his warriors and said, Hey, man, listen, if you think that you can, you know, basically defeat the, the, the lame and the blind, then you can probably take our city. That's how weak your warriors are. But they did take the city, and David named it for himself and called it Jerusalem. Now, the reason why Jerusalem is significant is because it is significant to God. God told Solomon, when Solomon dedicated the temple, the first temple under the Lord, Solomon said, hey, God said to Solomon, said, look, he said, I, I have not looked for a place on this earth and I have not looked for a, a man to rule over you, he said. But, he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be the king over this city. So whatever God chooses, that makes it significant. When Cindy and I were in Israel, thank you for sending us. I told Cindy, I said, this, there's, there's much about this place that is rugged and ugly. And I said, there's really not anything significant about it except for who has walked through these places and what has happened in some of these places. And what makes Jerusalem a specific place is because of all the places in the whole world that God could have chosen to place His name. Anywhere in Texas, He could have chosen. Uh, anywhere in the United States, He could have chosen. Anywhere in the world, He could have chosen. But He said, that place right there, that little piece of land right there, I'm going to put my name right there. I'm going to build my temple, allow them to build my temple. And by the way, do you realize that that is where you had to go to worship? God said, that's where I'll put my name and that's where I'll meet with you. Do you remember in John 4 when Jesus had met the woman at the well and they got into a discussion and Jesus was talking with her and she said, why are you even talking to me? And I'm paraphrasing this conversation. She said, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan. She understood the significance. It was the Samaritans who said, listen, you don't need to go down to Jerusalem to worship. We'll just set up our, a convenient place here for you to worship and we'll just have two places or three places. And that's sort of like people who think they don't have to go to church. 
and who think they can have their own little private relationship with God where they don't have to do what God says. They just kind of have their own relationship with the Lord and have their own shrine at home and do their, their own thing. That's kind of the attitude that the Samaritans had. You know, when Jesus was telling her, he said, you know, you know, and she's talking with Jesus and Jesus confesses, you know, basically that, that and she says, you know, in Jerusalem is where that you worship God. And Jesus looked at her, you don't even know what you're worshiping. But yes, it is in Jerusalem where you worship God, but you must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus acknowledges the importance of the city of Jerusalem and the significance of it. And so and there's some things that are happening in this story that are going to parallel to what's going on in America to some degree. Do you know, do you know that the Jerusalem is the city of three major religions upon the planet? Are you aware of that? You have there where Judaism, you have there... Islam, where if you go there and you go to where the temple used to be, there is what is called the Dome of the Rock. And when we were given the opportunity to go and visit the temple site, uh, we had to check in through this, uh, this gate. And there were guys there with rifles and, and uh, they were watching over this place and they, um, they, they gave us instructions of what we could do and could not do. And, and they basically said, you know, don't. Touch and they told me, don't touch your wife. Don't put your hands on her. Don't, you know. And uh, she had to be dressed in certain garbs. And really, she was very modest. My wife is a modest woman. She was dressed appropriately. But they, they run a racket there, I'm just telling you. But, but when we got close to the temple site or where it used to be and where the dome was, and we were taking some photos or whatever, and I just, out of habit, just reached up there and touched Cindy on the shoulder. Well, this guy was like a... You know, an AR-15 or whatever, he, he put that gun up against me and said, don't touch that woman. And I said, okay. <laughs> okay. And so, but they, they, these were Muslims that were doing this, basically, protecting their religious site. And when it came time for the Jews to come through to the prayer wall there, some of the women were passing by that way. Well, here come a bunch of Muslim women, and they were barking and howling and screaming like a bunch of dogs. And they were following the Jewish women so that when the, when the Jews got ready to pray, that they wouldn't be able to hear themselves and wouldn't be able to, it would just be confusion because of their hatred for each other. It was just wicked, Okay. Now, at the same time, our guide said, now these guys that are doing all this stuff right here, he said, these same guys, when the day is over and they clock out, they'll probably be down at the same bar getting a beer together. He said, they like to do this stuff in front of Gentiles that are giving them money to come see these sites. I said, now that's an interesting thought. But the bottom line is, is that Jerusalem is a place where Judaism, Islam, and Christianity claim much of their original uh, founding in that area. And it's a city of great kings. It's a city of many wars. You know that, don't you? We're talking about a place where that it has held the world's attention for many years. A city of biblical prophecy, then and now. It's a city where the church began, where the Holy Ghost was sent down from heaven, and where the commission was given to preach the gospel. Some of the facts about Jerusalem, I think that you need to be aware of. It's been, it's been attacked 52, by the way, it's one of the oldest cities in the world. It's been attacked 52 times, 
captured and recaptured 44 times, besieged 23 times, destroyed two times. And we'll talk about one of those destructions that Jesus was talking about in just a moment. But I want you to look at Matthew 11 with me now. Follow along with me as we uh, come to a, a conclusion here about what Jesus was referring to. Matthew 11 <clears throat> and verse 16. Matthew 11, verse 16. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke to these women and said, you need to weep for yourselves and for your children. So basically what he was saying is, you're about to become the victims of your fathers and your husbands and your sons and your grandfathers and their choices and decisions concerning me and concerning my father. Your city and your country is about to be under the wrath of God. And the patience and long-suffering of God has reached its limits. And what you and I need to understand that when before God destroys a nation, it's almost like it's like a big five-gallon bucket, and God just keeps putting up with stuff, but that bucket keeps filling up and getting closer and closer to the top of where that God says, "Okay, that's it. You've reached you've reached my limit." And now I am going to destroy you and I'm going to allow you to experience my wrath. Okay? And history proves this to be true. Now remember, he was going to do that to, to uh, uh, Nineveh and God sent Jonah, a prophet, and they repented and they, they, God spared them for a certain amount of time, but it still came upon them about 150 years later. Keep this in mind about what happened to Jerusalem and what may happen to America. Keep this in mind, okay? Matthew 11. Turn with me to please verse 16. Jesus said these words, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. In other words, they were fickle and they could not be satisfied. No matter what the Lord did or what anybody did, they were never satisfied or responded appropriately. Verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber and a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. In other words, no preacher is going to satisfy you. No preacher, no man of God is ever going to satisfy you. Whether he's soft-spoken or whether he is one that just rips the hide off of you when you come. And the Bible says here in verse 20, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Now this is a very sobering truth. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done entire in Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, in ashes. The light that you are given, the more light that you are given, the more truth that you are exposed to, the more you will be held accountable for in the eyes of God. Verse 13. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable <clears throat> for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, one of the cities of, of Israel, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. 
But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And so as you go through the book of Matthew, you're going to find that Jesus Christ reveals to them that my Father has sent you prophet after prophet, preacher after preacher, and you have rejected the light and the love. And by the way, when Jesus came on the scene and he called his men, the things that they did were unbelievable. He called out 12 men and then 70 men and 120 men, and he sent them out throughout the cities of Israel, and he gave them power to heal the sick to cast out devils, and even to raise the dead. And they went throughout these cities, and he says, if they receive you, great. If they don't, then dust the feet, dust your, your hands and your feet off and just keep going, he said, because they'll answer for rejecting the light. But, I mean, this whole nation had received... Uh, Miracle after miracle. Cities were, were filled with people who had been sick. Can you imagine how this area would respond if one man showed up in the city of Houston and went down to the medical center, just down to, to MD Anderson, and went from floor to floor to floor and healed those people that were in that building? Can you imagine the reaction and the response? And they'd be saying, man, what a man. What, who is this? Well, Jesus sent out his teams to do this. They had never seen anything like this in Israel before. And Jesus said, when you get done, he said, I'm going to visit these places and I'm going to preach to them and I'm going to preach for them to repent. And so when you get to, look in Matthew, uh, look with me in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, I believe it is. Well, for sake of time, let's go on to Matthew 16. I want to show you where things change, okay? Look with me in Matthew 16. And the Bible says here, uh, this is where Jesus asked his men a question about who do you say that I am? Now, previous to this, while he had been preaching, the Pharisees had come up to him and had begun to put out the word on the news that Jesus was doing these miracles by the power of, of the devil. And Jesus said to them, he said, you know, there's a lot of things you can be forgiven of. As a matter of fact, he said, you can be forgiven of of everything. He said, except for what you're accusing me of. He said, you are giving credit to the devil what only the Holy Ghost can do. And you are blaspheming the Holy Ghost. And he said, you'll not be forgiven of what you're doing, he said, and you'll stand before God and you'll answer for every idle word that you have spoken out of your mouth. But you know, they didn't react in fear to that. They began to ask him more questions to try to catch him in his words. They would not respond in humility to, the, to this great man of God that was passing their way. And so when you get to Matthew 16, he asked them, who do you say that I am in verse number 13? And some said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, you know, that's been, you know, that's been risen from the dead. Some say you're Elias. Some say Jeremiah. Some said some of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Simon said in verse number 16, he said, well, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who you are. And he said, you know, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. He said, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church in the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now something changes here now. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Verse 21, And from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. My friend, this is one of the first times that you will actually hear Jesus giving them the message of the gospel that we know as the gospel today. And how do they respond to that? Verse 22 says, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And so things begin to change at this moment of where Jesus is now beginning to reveal to them what he knows that Jerusalem and what those people and those men are going to do to him in a few weeks and in a few days. He knows this. But he has come to remove their cloak of hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. Could Look with me in Matthew 23. Bear with me now. I've got to lay some groundwork here before we get to the practical stuff. So be, be, be patient with me. Look in Matthew 23. The Bible says that Jesus came preaching, and when he did preach many times, the Bible says he spoke with truth. And he spoke, spoke the truth with grace. And when he came to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus here in Matthew 23 has had it up to here with them and their hypocrisy and what they are doing to the nation. And so he goes straight at the Sanhedrin court. He goes straight at their religious leaders. And he begins to pronounce woes upon them. He knows what's coming. And he knows they refuse to repent. And so when you get to Matthew 23, and by the way, I want you to keep in mind that as Jesus approached this city and before he pronounced these woes upon these men, the Lord Jesus Christ had wept over this city. And he said, if you had only known, had you only known the opportunity that was being presented to you, and if you only understood what could have been, but you said no, you would not, now you cannot. And listen, I I, I would to God that every young person in here would understand that, every man and woman in here would understand that, that when you keep saying no to God and no to God and no to God, And when you choose, you say, I will not, I will not, there will come a time of where that you won't be able to choose what is right anymore. You will have crossed over a line. In other words, it goes from I will not to I cannot. So when you get to Matthew 23, let's skip through this real fast, okay, like a rock going across the lake, okay? Notice what Jesus said in verse number 16. He said, Woe unto you, you blind guides. Look at verse 17 of chapter 23. You fools and blind. Verse 19. You fools and blind. Look down at verse 24. You blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Look at verse 26. He said, Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, then the outside of them shall be made clean also. He said in verse 27, and this, this I understand more than ever, 
One of the guides that was with us in Israel told us what Jesus meant here, and it made perfect sense. Jesus is there on the temple steps, and they are behind him here, and behind the Lord Jesus Christ, should I say, as they were looking at him behind the Lord Jesus Christ, was a huge, one of the largest graveyards in the world. And they paint these sepulchers, and they can see those sepulchers when Jesus is saying this to them. In verse 27, he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Now notice carefully what he says in verse 28. Even you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and you garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witness unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers, your serpents. Now that wasn't a very nice thing to say. You generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? He said, wherefore behold I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues, and persecute them from city to city. You know, back in the day before you had your Bible that you have now, how are you going to hear from the Lord? If you lived back in those days, you had to be connected to a Jew. You had to be connected to Jerusalem because that's where God sent His message. God sent it through the Jew. He sent it through the prophets and the scribes And verse 35 says that they killed them all. They killed most of them. Verse 35. He said that upon you. Now, I don't understand this, but I'm going to tell you what I think about it. This is a divine truth, and you don't have to agree with it. You just need to learn to accept it. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, the son of... Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. And all you have to do to find out what Jesus was talking about and understand this, that God keeps a record of what people do and God's judgment does not fall immediately upon the evil that's occurring in the land. But again, it's like that five-gallon bucket where he just said, okay, I'm going to just let this keep adding up and adding up and adding up until eventually it overflows. And he said, then my wrath is going to come. But there was a man of God who stood against a king by the name of, and that that prophet was named Zechariah. And he stood and he said, hey, king, what you're doing is ungodly. He said, man, you're leading the, the country into idolatry. He said, you know good and well that God's been good to you and good to your father and you are basically a wicked king. And the Bible says that they took him and they killed him for telling them the truth. Well, here Jesus is bringing this to their attention. He said, you know what? You're just like your father. You're just like your grandfather. 
You like preachers of the past, but you don't like preachers of the present. You like to brag about all the old prophets and old preachers in the old past, but when one stands right before you and tells you like it is, you get angry and you, you speak evil of him and you rob your children of the message of the truth. And so the scripture says here, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I want you to notice he says that the blood, he said, is going to come upon this generation, verse 36. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And I think when you get to verse 37, you you feel the heart of Jesus. When he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I hear in that a sadness. I hear in that a sorrow. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So would you agree with me that Jesus rips the leadership pretty good here? The Jews were chosen by the hand of God to manifest Him on this planet earth. They rejected God the Father when they said, we want a king like the Gentiles. And Samuel said, he told Samuel, he said, listen, they're not, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Talking about God the Father, and they did. We want a king like everybody else. So they, he gave them Saul. They rejected the Son of God here as we read through these passages. And they rejected the Spirit of God when God sent the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost and many of these Jews were converted, but many of them were not. And so the leadership began to persecute the preachers. Stephen, James was run through with a sword. Peter, excuse me, Stephen was then stoned to death. And he mentioned to them that they were always resisting the prophets and the preachers and the Holy Ghost. And so as time progressed and they began to again reject the light that God had given them, I need you to turn to a place in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Jesus said to these women, now remember Jesus is about to go to the cross and about to die for the sins of the world. And of all the things that he could have been thinking about, of all the things that he could have spoken about, he looks at those women and he says to them, he says, weep not for me. He said, but weep for yourselves. In 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, what they did to Jesus, the wrath of God did not come upon them immediately for what they had done. But do you remember what they said to Pilate? They said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Do you remember that at the statement at at the crucifixion when they were having the trial? Well, as time progressed and as they began to not only reject Jesus Christ, but also began to reject the apostles and take their lives. Saul was one of those who persecuted the church until he was converted. But they chased men down and tried to keep them from preaching in the name of Jesus. They hated the fact, the Jews hated the fact that these men were preaching and opening the door up to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They chased these men throughout the the cities. When you get to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, now remember what happened with Jesus and he spoke to these women. This happened around A.D. 30, A.D. 33. All right? And so now about A.D. 50, around A.D. 60, A.D. 50, and A.D. 60, they are still at it, talking about the Jews, rejecting the light, harming the light, 
trying to keep the gospel from going around the world. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, and look what Paul says here as he's writing to the Thessalonians. Verse 14, he said, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. He's talking about the Jew here in Jerusalem and that area. Look at verse 16. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be what? Saved. Why would it bother you that God might save somebody else? He says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up. Look at this now. To fill up their sins always. Then look at this. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. And so what he is saying is confirming what Jesus said to those women. Weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the day is coming. He said that you will cry for the mountains to fall upon you. He told those Pharisees and Sadducees, and he told his own men, he said, you see these beautiful temple here? He said, the day is coming of where? That every one of those stones are going to be separated one from another. And he says, this whole city is going to be raised, and the armies will gather around it. And he talked about what was going to happen in those days. Well, did it happen? Did the words of Jesus come to pass? Did it come to pass? Now, I want you to think about this. Let me give you some information and some facts, and some of this is horrific. The words of Jesus. This, this is factual information, historical information. And really, it started around A.D. 66 and really kind of finished up around A.D. 70. But Jerusalem, or the Jews, began a revolt. They had rejected God, but they also had rejected God's hand of judgment as far as the Romans having any authority over them. So they started a revolt against the Roman government. And what they did to Jesus, as Jesus said, if they're going to do this to me and I'm harmless, and I'm holy, and I'm good, What are they going to do to you? Well, Jerusalem was reclaimed by the Romans after a siege by Titus, his army. Now give me some facts real quick. And then let's put this to the practical things on it for us. In AD 70, Titus put down the revolt, captured Jerusalem, and punished rebellious Jewish zealots by assaulting agricultural land so they couldn't grow anything, slaughtered and enslaved thousands of Jews, and looted menorahs and other sacred objects. Thousands of Jews, slaves, were brought to Rome from Judea, and during a huge triumphal procession commemorated by the Ark of Titus, Jewish prisoners were paraded through the streets and strangled at the forum. Josephus claimed that all together over one million Jews died as a result of the Roman crackdown. For two years... 
Then Jerusalem was under siege. Starvation, disease, and murder were the order of the day. In the final analysis, by the month of August in the year of AD 70, the fate of Jerusalem was a foregone conclusion. How many of you ever read anything by Josephus, the historian? Some of you have. Some of you may have never heard of him. He was there. He saw some of these things and, and recorded some of the events that happened as Jesus said that it would. Describing what Jerusalem was like during the siege, Josephus wrote this. Throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring indescribable sufferings. In every house, the, the merest hint of food sparked violence and close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. No respect was paid even to the dying. You say, well, how did they get in that condition? If this was the city of Jerusalem and these were the walls, then you would find that the whole uh, uh, army of uh, the Romans were around and besieged this city where that none could go in or come out. And this went on for several years of where that there were no grocery. Can you imagine what it would be like here if you couldn't go to the grocery store? Uh, for, I'm talking about, you, 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 you've used up everything that you have. These folks around here go in a panic after just a few days after a hurricane. All right? This happened for a few years. Gaping with hunger like mad dogs. Lawless gangs went staggering and reeling through the streets. Remember now, you can't get out and you can't get in. Battering upon the doors like drunkards and so bewildered, they broke into the same house two or three times in an hour. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuge, which even animals would reject, was collected and turned into food. In the end, they were eating belts and shoes and leather stripped off their shields. Little pieces of withered grass were devoured and sold in little bundles for money. Among the residents, and this is, I think, again goes to what Jesus said. Among the residents, there was a woman called Mary. Famine gnawed at her vitals and the fire of rage was even fiercer than famine. Now, I know that many of you women in here would say that you would never do this. But you don't know how famine affects, and I don't know, experientially, how famine alters the mind, how that hunger begins to distort reality. And desperation causes you to do things that you would never, ever imagine that you would do. Famine gnawed at her vitals, and the fire of rage was even fiercer than famine, so driven by fury she and hunger... She committed a crime against nature. Seizing her child, an infant at the breast, she cried, My poor baby, why should I keep you alive in this world of war and famine? Even if we live till the Romans come, they will make slaves of us. Come, be food for me. With these words, she killed her son, roasted the body, swallowed half of it, stored the rest in a safe place. But the rebels were on to her at once, smelling roast meat and threatening to kill her instantly if she did not produce it. She assured them that she saved them a share and revealed the remains of her child. 
Seed with horror and stupefaction, they stood paralyzed by the sight. But she said, This my own child and my own handiwork. She said, Eat, for I have already eaten. Can you imagine a mother in this room coming to that point if we were besieged here and we began to eat our own children? Wouldn't you say that Jesus was right when he said that you'd say how blessed it would be for a woman not to even have a child in those circumstances or to be expecting a child in those circumstances? Well, History goes on to say that the Romans burned and sacked the second temple at that time. And the Romans added insult to injury by by burning uh, the temple to the ground. They had been told there was gold between the stones and they believed that. And they were in such a rabid fury that they began to break and bust apart the very stones of that temple. And it is also said that they raised a standard over that temple in that with the image of a pig during those days. And today, there's only part of that left of where that original temple was, and it's called the the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, where you can still go there today and and pray. And I'm just saying that during this time, uh, would you say that that would be a horrific thing to go through? And what you have here, and let's go back to our text, and and, and let me give you some practical things. Here and then we'll we'll go to the house. You say, Brother Roger, you're depressing me. Well, I'm going to tell you something about the Bible. The Bible will tell you the truth, and then the Bible will give you hope. Okay, and and what you want sometimes is for somebody, some curly haired guy who's cute and on TV to tell you that you know every day's every day's a Friday, but every day's not a Friday. You know, I have some weeks where every day's a Monday. Amen. But I want you to look in Luke 23 with me, please. And again, let's close with this thought here, okay? Give me just a few more minutes and then we'll... My, sis, my sister Rachel is here with me today. She said, now we're going to stay till church is over, but don't be long today. So I'm going to have to hurry up and get this done, all right? But I'm glad to have her here. I love her. She's dear to me and I appreciate her being here to comfort my, my dear wife during her time of loss. And so... In Luke 23, again, remember what Jesus said, seriously. He said in verse 29, For the days, behold, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew those people. You say, well, if he knew what they were going to do, then does it give them, does God fare in giving, holding them accountable for what they were going to do? Let me ask you a question. What would happen? I think that I, I, I think that I have enough sense and perception to know what would happen if I were to take a good, honest policeman who is a policeman for the right reason, who wants to protect the innocent, and uh, punish evil. If I were to take a, a white police officer and place him in the middle of Chicago on a Saturday night, I wonder how he would be treated if he remained there and if he were to do his job 
what would happen. Hmm? I think I know what would happen. I think that if you were to take this Bible and go down to, let's say, like maybe uh, into a Muslim country and you were to stand on Main Street where they start, when they start making all of their music from their, their mosque and their prayer time and you get out there and you open up your Bible. We send Brother Ed down there. He opens up his Bible. He begins to proclaim, Thus saith the Lord. And uh, John three sixteen. what do you think would happen? Do you have an idea what might happen? If you think that if a Jew went to one of those places and began to proclaim that Jehovah is the true and only God, do you have an idea of what might happen? So if you know that, how much do you think God knows about human nature? He knew when he sent the Son that that light would be rejected. And yet he held those men responsible and accountable for their decisions and their choices. So how does that help me today, Brother Roger? This is history. It was prophetical. What it does tell you, I say to my grandsons, I say to my son-in-laws, I say to my own son, that what Jesus said was prophetic and it came to pass, which means you can trust what Jesus says. What Jesus says is right and is true about everything. You can't just take the good. You have to take all of it, of what Jesus has to say. But I will say this. The practical truth for us today about this is that, number one, Jesus was on a mission. And he was going to accomplish the Father's will. And the sympathizers are not the same as believers. And those women would experience the wrath of God that was going to come if they did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You may read through the crucifixion of Christ and you might be moved to sympathy about what Jesus did. But unless you believe upon him for who he is, it will do you no good. Others have gone on before us. And let's talk about these leaders. It was the leaders. Do you understand? It was the leaders of Israel. And it was one generation affecting another generation affecting another generation that brought the wrath of God upon the Jew and God scattered that nation. He scattered the Jew around the world after A.D. 70. God scattered them across the globe under His wrath. Now, listen, there's other good prophecies about that of him bringing them back together. That's not what this message is about. And I think they did come back together in 1948 when he reestablished that. And our president acknowledged Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which I think was a grand thing to do. But the world hates him for doing that, do you understand? But I need you to understand here that in, in, in this passage here that what about America? If Israel can continue to do this and it just kind of adds up and adds up and builds up until at some point God says, that's it, that's enough, I've had enough of this, I'm fixing to overthrow you. The Bible says the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. All nations that forget God. Now you can't forget someone whom you have not yet known. All right, America has known God. And our leadership across the country is doing its very best to turn our nation, our school systems, our college systems into places that orient boys and girls into an idea that there is no divine creator. There is no divine order of male and female. And that they have no real divine purpose for even being here on this planet. 
The democratic philosophy and platform is Romans chapter number 1, which is the death knoll of any nation. Of when you reject the divine creator, can you imagine what it would be like if you were to go to Harvard University or you were to go to one of the major universities or maybe even just be on CNN for about 30 minutes and they were to ask you some questions of what would be your platform if you ran as for president. They said, do you believe that there really is just one God? And you said, why, why sure I believe that. Are you telling us that you believe that there is a God who created all of this? Well, yeah. Don't you? Are you telling us that you have confidence in an old book that's an antique book that's been written by many authors and you believe everything that's in that book? Well, yeah, I do. So, so, so wait a minute. If you believe what's in that book, are you telling me that you don't think that Women should be in leadership? Boy, that's where it's really going to get in trouble, right there when you say that. Now, you realize that that the world and America is clapping that there are multitudes of women that have been voted into office this past election. Now, I thank God for some good women who did stand up and will face some of these other women that are wicked up there. But I'm telling you, the Lord is not pleased. When women are in leadership in a nation, it is one of the signs of the judgment of God upon a nation before he takes it down. You say, well, Brother Roger, I don't like that. I know you like preachers of the past who were bold and you like to listen to them on tape and like to read their books. But if one stands up and tells you today what the Bible actually says, well, you find fault with him and you don't like him. Do you understand? That's exactly what Jesus said they were doing. So let me ask you some questions. What can we do to help preserve our nation? What can we do? What can you and I do? Let me ask you a few questions, fellas, and I'm speaking primarily to you young men. If you're 18 and up, I'm talking to you. Give yourself a test right now. What is your estimation of godly preachers. What is your estimation of preachers? I'm not talking about false prophets. I'm not talking about guys that are goons. Jesus said you can tell them by the fruit. But I'm asking you, do you have any relationship with a man of God? Anywhere? Can you not find one? He said, well, I, I think they're all just phony. Well, okay, all right. Then you're just like the men that Jesus talked about. See, you're saying that God does not have a remnant of men who actually fear Him, love Him, and preach His book. And you can't find one that you can have a relationship with. Hmm? Jesus said, what is your estimation? He said, "This, this is what you say about the prophets of the past. What about the ones that are in front of you? And by the way, the the Bible gives you protection of what kind of man to look for and is he qualified to protect you. 1 Thessalonians says you're to to hold them in high esteem for for their work's sake. So I'm just saying, guys, now listen, of all the men that you bump elbows with, of all the guys that you work with, all the people that you know, how many of them have a very high estimation of men of God? Now, there was a time when this country didn't think that way. 
But now today, I'm asking you though, I'm asking you, some of your friends, some of the folks that you went to other churches, and, and, and I'm talking about the preachers that you know. I'm talking about all the ministers of God that you have bumped to and to know. Is there anybody that you love and respect and are willing to high, hold in high esteem? What kind of relationship do you have with any man of God in your life? This is where Jesus said it began to, when they began to resist the prophets and the scribes and the apostles and the preaching of the word of God, that's when it began to deteriorate. See, there is no temple anymore. There is no place to go in Jerusalem to worship anymore. So where does God do that at now? Is there a place? According to the Bible, that there is a pillar and ground of truth, and it's called the church of God. It's called the house of God. Do you have a relationship there? The reason I'm asking you these questions, because if you can't say, if you can't give me the right answers, you are part of the problem that's going to take this country down. You are not part of the solution. You know what Paul said? He said, quit you like men. Quit you like men. Choose which side you're going to stand on. You can't be passive. You know what happened in Isaiah chapter 3? He said there were no leaders. There were no men who wanted to be in leadership. And he said, the men that were around were letting the kids tell them what to do. And if it wasn't the kids telling them what to do, it was the women telling them what to do. You say, well, Brother Rod, you've got an attitude about women. I do not have an attitude about women. Except a good one. I have a biblical one. Women stayed with Jesus all the way to the cross, buddy. I'm telling you, they, they hang with him. And women will stay in the work of God when men are nowhere to be found. And women will have family altar with their children when the man won't do nothing. And women will pray for their pastor and for their church and try to support the work of God when men are too lazy or don't care or say, you take care of it. You are part of the problem. You are part of the problem, not part of the solution unless you step up. Our nation needs good men who will quit themselves like men. Give yourself a test. What role or impact does a house of God have in your life? What does Jesus mean to you and does his words even really matter to you? Hmm? How much light is passing before you right now? Can I say to some of you teenagers, these people right here, they had light right in front of their eyes and they couldn't even see it. And you've got a mom and dad, maybe, I hope, I hope you have a mother or a father, one I prayed in your family that fears God and loves God. But I'm telling you what God wants. God wants a man to lead. He wants that man to be engaged. He wants that man to participate. And he wants that man to be willing to stand against evil in these last days. And God will allow wicked rulers to come to judge a nation. He will do that. But I know this. That God wants every man in here to have a good relationship with preachers and missionaries so that they can receive the word of God and pray for men of God and that they might, that the work of God might continue because you're to be light and salt of a nation. Now, if you were in Sodom and Gomorrah, you had no idea the judgment of God was coming. You had not heard of some of the things about Jehovah, but there was a guy that had showed up and he was a backslidden believer. The Bible says Lot was a righteous man. He was vexed by the lifestyle of those people. And when Abraham prayed for God to spare that city, God said, okay, I've had it with that city. I'm fixing to take it out. 
And God said, would you please spare it for at least 10? And he's thinking maybe Lot has influenced his family and at least those around him. And man, there wasn't even 10. I'm begging you, men, if you would, to look at this. Ladies, listen, this thing has a, a, a I guess the word is a community, uh, I'm thinking of a word, it, it, it just one thing builds upon another. There's layers of this, of generations past in America who begin to turn their back on God and on the Bible and on the truth of God. And it's just been one layer after another layer. And how much longer is God going to allow us to continue on? As I told you last week, I cannot, it blows my mind that if it's true, if it's true and if it's factual, which I'm not sure that it is, I I hope it's not, that over 70 million Americans voted blue and voted for baby killers and transgenderism and sodomites and socialism and I promise you and even turning down and getting away from religious liberty of where that people will not be able to say the things that they used to be able to say I don't understand that but I hope and pray by the grace of God that there are millions of others that there's another 70 million who said, we don't want this, that we want God, and that there would be some men in little churches like this who would say, I'm going to fear God. I'm going to show myself to be a man. I'm going to lead my family, and I'm going to love my wife, and I'm going to discipline my children, and I'm going to stand with the man of God, and I'm going to stand for the word of God, and I'm going to be a witness till Jesus comes. I hope and pray you'll be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And ladies, if you got a man that's trying to lead, pray, continue to pray for him and follow him. And fellas, if your wife is having to push you to lead, I pray you'd ask God to forgive you and that you'd just get up closer to God and ask God to give you wisdom to lead your family. Amen. Let's stand together, please. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Lord, that I pray that the East River Baptist Church would be salt and light in these last days. And that, Lord, we as men would be part of the solution in our country and not part of the problem. And may we quit ourselves like men and may we stand in the last days and having done all to stand. In Jesus' precious name, amen.